This episode of the Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again. And listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links or becoming patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Stay right there, let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show. And I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 289, we're reaching out to the Critters to talk about the Taldori campaign setting, and later we'll be talking to James Hake, one of the authors of the book. And joining us in this episode, we have a panel of, of Critical Role fans uh, to, to balance out the, the, the hosts who are less well-versed. Um, so first up, we have our junior editor who works on shows like the D&D and Data Show, The Roundtable, and is now trying to help us get caught up on, on several months of backlog from book clubs. Uh, welcome, Aaron Good. Hello. Hello. And the co-host of the wonderful Performance Check podcast, a show all about taking inspiration from the theatrical arts and trying to up our game uh, after seeing all these live stream players taking it to the next level. Uh, Emily Bonneville, welcome to your first appearance on The Tome Show. Well, thank you and hello. And I should have checked ahead of time. Did I say your name right? Yes. All right. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And lastly... But far from leastly, we have Ishmael Alvarez, our social media manager, returning to the spotlight. If you ha- see something posted on the Tome Show on Facebook or other places, it's probably either his doing or something that I threw together between doing homework assignments and research. Welcome back, Ishmael. It's good to be back. And uh, so we figured before we talked about the book, we should explain a little bit. What about what it is? Taldoria's campaign setting, Matt Mercer created for his livestream game, known as Critical Role. After years of play and growing popularity, he uh, partnered with Green O'Neill and James Hake, uh, who we'll talk to you later, to put the setting into a book. Uh, so before we get too far, let's go through everyone's general familiarity with Critical Role and the setting prior to reading the book. Uh, Ishmael, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I've caught a handful of episodes. Um, I've been trying to catch up on a bunch of the uh, a lot of the different uh, uh, games that uh, both uh, Wizards of the Coast themselves do and uh, the critical hits. And uh, it's the kind of thing I'm so busy. I have them on the in the background, but uh, I really like what I see. But I'm not. I'm by far not anywhere near an expert. Like maybe some other people are, or as much of a fan as some other people are. But give me some time, and I'll probably be there. Uh, Emily? Uh, I'm a pretty big fan. I think I've been watching live since like episode 20. So um, I'm up to date. I'm waiting for tonight and can't wait for the episode. And yeah, I'm a pretty big critter. So I knew a lot about the world when I got the book. Awesome. Aaron? Yeah, same for me, uh, really. I think I've been watching uh, since around a similar time, like episode 20 or very early in the run um so yeah i'm definitely gonna after we're done here gonna catch tonight's episode for sure yeah we should let everyone know we uh happen to record oftentimes on thursday and today is thursday and that is when the show is on Mm -hmm. what about you jeff 
so I've I've I'm I'm very aware of Critical Role. I've watched a few episodes, um, um, but I've not. Um, the the live streaming format has not proven itself to be ideal for me, so I was very happy recently to discover that they've started releasing the audio as a podcast, and there's about 40 episodes. Uh, the you know the first 40 or so episodes of the, oh. the Critical Role show are now available as, as podcast downloads. So I'll, I, I will be catching up <laughs> as those become more available. Cool. And I'm kind of more in Jeff's boat. Uh, I'd known about it. Uh, but with the pregnancy and then having a small one, I haven't been able to keep up as much with the community. But I'm also looking forward to the podcast uh, release because I also added a to my commute recently. Mm-hmm. So I have more time to listen to things now. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that's actually uh, – the fact that we have those varying perspectives I think will, will actually be useful to us in determining uh, how much of the book makes sense to the uninitiated and how much does it um, appeal to those who already know the, the world and the setting and the stories pretty well. So um, different but valuable perspectives there. Uh, before we dive into that review of the campaign setting, though, we need to mon- mention our sponsor, Noble Knight. They specialize in selling out-of-print products, but they also carry the latest and greatest. Uh, in fact, my pick for this episode is one of those latest and greatest. It is the very book that we are reviewing tonight. Well, tonight as we record. I don't know when you're listening. Uh, it is ca- titled Critical Role, Taldori Campaign Setting. It's $5 off the cover price from Noble Knight. Uh, so if you are interested in what you hear from us, consider heading over to Noble Knight to buy your copy uh, and be sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Remember when a Sarak built a tomb in Greyhawk? Noble Knight does. Remember when we stood against the giants? Noble Knight does. Remember Thaco? Noble Knight does. Remember when the legendary Dragonlance was recovered to win the war? Noble Knight does. Remember Spelljammer? Mistara? Dark Sun? Planescape? Noble Knight does. Remember Chainmail? First edition? AD&D 3.5 4E? Noble Knight does. Remember all the stories you haven't told yet? All the games you haven't played? Noble Knight. A game store with all the best games from today and tomorrow and back through the ages of gaming history. Head over to thetomeshow.com to find a link to Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again. And be sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. And we're back. So first off, uh, in the in an effort to uh, be clear and, and provide full disclosure, uh, I, I need to at least say that I have received a, a review copy of this book. I did not pay for it. Green Ronin sent me a PDF version. Uh, anybody else receive free products from Green Ronin, just so everybody can be clear about their biases? Uh, I actually uh, purchased, I, I put a, what do you call I pre-purchased the uh, physical book um, well, a long time ago before I even knew that we're, I was going to be on this episode. Uh, but I, I did also receive a, a free PDF, which I don't feel nearly as bad about because I've got the physical you copy. purchased it too, yeah. yeah. I was sent a free PDF, but I bought my book at Gen Con. I bought the book and the PDF. There you go. Uh, I've bought only the PDF. 
my wallet cannot handle buying the book and then shipping it to Canada. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so we have a good mix of, of PDF of of the hardcover of you know people who received copies, people who paid for copies, people who did both. <laughs> In fact, I think I'm the only one who only am working from a free copy. Everybody else who got a free copy also paid for it. So, uh, so, so let's start off. Uh, Taldori campaign setting. What is this book? Who's got, a, who's got some insight into what is this thing all about? Um, so Taldori campaign setting, um, as we've said, is the uh, campaign setting book written by Matthew Mercer um, about the setting he uses on the show Critical Role. Um, it's got like a bunch of history about the world, um, like a big gazetteer, but all this, um, all the locations, got a bunch of player options and like monsters. Um, it's basically your one-stop shop if you want to play in Matt Mercer's sandbox. Okay. Uh, and Ishmael, did you have something you wanted to add to that or, or did he cover it? Uh, well, I, I was going to also add, uh, which I'm sure someone else would have chimed in anyhow, that James Haig also uh, did quite a bit of writing on it. And uh, that, yeah, I mean, he, he covered it pretty well. It's it's a really nicely done setting book that kind of tells you everything you need to know about uh, playing in that campaign setting. And if you want to know exactly how much of it is James and how much of it is Matt, um, listen to our interview later in the episode with with James, uh, where he goes through a little bit of the the collaborative process. Uh, it sounded like they they merged their efforts pretty pretty thoroughly throughout the whole process. Um, he said they they usually just had a Google Doc open and were constantly both working on it and changing things and whatever. So if there's a consistent voice, it's it's the the weird blend of their both two voices together that have consistently been woven throughout the whole book so 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 the book is a campaign setting based on the world of of critical role of of that you know that story that narrative um it involves mostly history and locations right i mean it starts with with a chapter on sort of the history of the world and and um how campaigns work and and how the different races and whatever play out in this setting um who the different factions are and then it gets into sort of the the gazetteer look at these different locations and whatever and then it ends with um character options well i guess ends chapter three is character options and goes on to sort of allies and adversaries um at the end um but it feels like the bulk of the book is the gazetteer section in the middle right totally yeah absolutely so I'm kind of curious for those of you who are are fans of Critical Role and have you know the the two of you I guess that have, that have listened to or watched the breadth of every show, um, how much of this did you already know and how much of this was new information? Um, I I knew them like because you mostly know only where they've been, so I didn't know anything about where they had been before. Like I heard. I had heard some names. I was curious to read about, okay, well, they started off in this city. Like, what was that city like? Mm. And, like, just seeing everything, because I have a hard time picturing sometimes because of my learning disabilities. So it was, like, actually getting to read and see the pictures and be like, okay, this is what it looks like, instead of, like, okay, I was picturing it all wrong. That's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, i definitely say that that just as a rough estimate i could be way off the mark but it seems like probably like half of the gazetteer section is stuff we haven't seen on the show 
hmm. um, which is awesome. There's a ton of stuff that I had no idea was in this world um, that I'm super excited we may someday see on the show. But it feels consistent with everything you know about the world. Yeah. It oh, yeah. Def- yeah, totally. Okay. So let, let's just get some general impressions. Uh, I get the impression from, from our two critters that you're big fans of the, of the book, yes? Yes, uh, yes. 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. Okay. I, can't run to, I can't wait to run my, camp, my players into this campaign. Like, it's going to be so, so much fun. Okay. Ishmael, you're, you're more in the same boat as Tracy and I, as, as more um, Taldori novices. Uh, what's your impression? What do you think? Uh, I'm actually very much impressed with the level of um, thoroughness that they that this setting book has. Like it's it it kind of covers everything you need to know about the setting uh, in as short a manner as as possible. Because obviously, you know, the, they could have maybe written like a three thousand three hundred page book, but they didn't. Uh, but really, what the, what uh, struck me about the setting book is that it, it uh, is very much like Sword Coast Adventures Guide hmm. as kind of a comparison. Um, it gives you things that you need to know. It gives you history. It gives you uh, religious perspective. Uh, everything that is necessary for for writing uh, or for running a campaign in the setting. And um, having heard, like, I'm a, I'm a podcast fanatic, and I've heard a lot of uh, of uh, Matt Mercer talk on on Dragon Talk and say like, this is how I came up with it. And I know that it was kind of on the fly. He had initially, if I remember correctly, just meant it meant it as a one off. Or something similar, maybe not meant to be as long as it was. And um, the fact that they fleshed out an entire campaign setting from just that is kind of amazing to me. Uh, and they did a fantastic job with it. Yeah, it's really an excellent proof of concept for the concept that you know people always tell you when you're starting a campaign, right? Start small, start with you know just one town. And then when you need to know what's over that next hill, then you can figure out what's over that next hill. And you can slowly build your world from that. It seems like that's more or less where this came from and and now we have a fully fleshed out world uh, out of it but we but we do as you noted noted have a um like like you said it's more like a sword coast adventures guide right it's not uh not like a, a forgotten realms campaign guide big thick tome of, of all these different locations and all this information or whatever it's more of sort of a snapshot of these locations is that enough to be satisfying I, I think so. Uh, speaking for myself, I would have to say that it's exactly what you need to get into um, I- into a setting all in its own, uh, and because it does a good job, it, it gives you the things that you need instead of um, like just giving you little snippets of um, like. Well, let, to give you an example, I've seen a lot of setting books that will tell you boring details about a town, and they'll list how many people. Uh, there do a certain uh, kind of job and uh, it doesn't do that it it tells you what adventurers would need to know it tells you what a, a game master would need to know it tells you exactly what you need to know to run an adventure and uh, there were even notes in there it's like if your players are higher level they might be dealing with this kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, and it just is a testament to um, a setting that was kind of born out of uh, a game master's need to make the setting interesting for their players. And I think it's also a testament for how good Game Master uh, Matt Mercer is. 
Yeah, and actually, you bring up a good point. Like, like on one hand, like it's just enough of a snapshot, much like Sword Coast Adventure Guys. As much as just enough of a snapshot that that a decent DM is going to have enough to run on, but you know, also recognizes that a decent DM is creative enough to not need everything handed to them and not have to read through, you know, a page and a half of lore before they, you know, before the session where they're going to this town or whatever, right? You just need a little snippet and then the rest of it I can sort of make up on the fly. But you also hit on something that I thought was was really interesting about the book. For each location, they throw in uh, at least one, mostly, usually two, um, little adventure hooks, uh, and, it, and usually for different levels. So, you know, it might say for low-level characters, mid-level characters, high-level characters, and it's basically these are the kinds of stories and adventures that you might run into based on this setting. And because they took out all the, the more mundane things, every setting sort of feels really evocative and fantastic, uh, in my experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, those are some of my favorite bits of this book, actually. Um, the little adventure the, the little adventure hooks. Mm-hmm. Um the last book I remember seeing those in was, I think it was like the Gloom Rot campaign um. guide for fourth edition. They had like little bit similar things. Uh, but those are like the DM's dream, right? It's like, okay, location and ready made adventure. Boom, mm-hmm. go. It's awesome. I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that when I start getting really serious about creating a campaign, I, I will go through a, a setting like this and I'll read through all of that stuff and, and, find a theme that weaves its way through all a bunch of different threads and that becomes my campaign right um you know i did that when i first read the the fourth edition forgotten realms campaign guide like i read through the whole thing and by the end of it i'm like okay there's a story here that i picked up on that needs to be told Uh, and you don't Mm -hmm. even have to look very hard in this book because of those camp those those adventure hooks in every single location, like it would not take much effort to start reading through those hooks and be like, okay, after having looked at just those, I have a campaign now, right? I know what I'm doing in each of those locations and I can start to map things out and what's going to happen and where they're going to go. Yeah. And there's the additional layer too, because they provide like the macro and micro of what's going on. Cause there's the bigger uh, civilization kind of in decline sort of thing going on. But then there's also, uh, talking about in the individual areas, different people and groups that the adventurers might uh, be interested in. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, because not all of those uh, campaign hooks tie in directly into those two things, so there's like that middle layer too. Yeah. Uh, so Tracy, I, I, everybody's sort of given their general impressions of the book. What, what were your general impressions? What do you think? Um, overall? So, so I actually really liked it. It felt like a breath of fresh air to me to use a cliche um i didn't know anything going into the first time i I opened it up and i could see right away the care uh we talked to james a little bit about um how it has more progressive ideas in some ways uh and i could see it right away even with the way the gods were laid out Mm. and uh so i just kept wanting to read it and and really enjoyed it because i do like a lot of fantasy i just don't always want uh, some of the sexism that comes with it, or something like that. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> Although I will, I, I did note uh, while I while I simultaneously, as you point out, noted the the efforts towards gender equity in the book. Um, there's not yeah. a lot of racial equity in the book. There's very few minorities pictured. Uh, yeah, least, at least in the art. I agree, and uh, it, it was something that I eventually was going to 
go back to Green Ronin about. I, I guess we could have asked James, uh, but a lot of times I feel like that's the publisher doing the getting I mean, the art. They're making the art orders, right? Yeah, but I will agree with well, that. I think what I've heard over and over again in the industry from both people ordering art and from the people giving art is that um, people aren't specific enough or even when they are specific, they can say like, oh, I would like uh, a fighter that is of, you know, the, this race. And then they'll just get like some blonde white fighter dude. Right. Uh, even if they ask. So it's kind of a pervasive issue and, and it's hard to say, you know, where that broke down, if that was even a consideration or if nobody even thought of it, which is kind of another pervasive issue. with yeah, the, it, the... Go ahead. Oh, it, it it just definitely does seem like an oversight, like you're uh, describing. Just I I find the critic community to be like an exceptionally welcoming one. So mm-hmm. I, it definitely seems um, like a communication oversight, like you described, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to anything you know intentionally um, malicious. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I think that's why, like, even wizards with with their their connections and their resources and whatever. Um, when they st- first started putting together products for fifth edition, like the first thing they did before they sent out any art orders was they created a a massive uh, visual bible of what the worlds look like. So now when they send out art orders, they say we want somebody who's from this part of the world, and then they have an art reference and rec- can recognize, oh, this is somebody with darker skin and these features and whatever. Uh, and so that's that's sort of the 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 base level foundational way that they've tried to approach that. But even then, um, you know, it doesn't always work out that way because artists are going to give you what they give you. And and to a degree, um, sometimes by the time you figure that out, it's too late. Right. Yeah. And then they've had a hard time too, Mm -hmm. uh, even having done that because I've heard the uh, stories from uh, some of the folks there. Uh, So yeah, it's definitely a a hard issue. It's, but it is something to bring up because we don't want, you know, there are a lot of progressive ideas in there. But we don't want to feel have someone feel like we're uh, leading them astray. I think. Mm-hmm. Is, would you say, Jeff? Like, like yeah. If you look at it, there's gonna that might pop up. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but also on the other end, like we're only visiting like one part of Taldori, mm-hmm. and um, like we already know if you listen to Critical Role, like um, Marquette, they're darker skinned people. It could also be a bias of where you're visiting in the world. Like if you come to a certain country, or if you like, if you go to Europe, or different parts of Europe, people with different colors, but there's the majority of people. So in the few pictures of uh, people they've put, like they might have just, like it's probably just an oversight, but also like probably when we're going to be getting, if we get the other books for the other continents, they're probably going to be more inclusive based on where we are at that point. Could be. Although. Uh- I have I have bad news, Emily. James says it'll probably be at least a few years before we get any more setting books. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I will That's still okay. buy it. Oh no, I didn't. I wouldn't think you wouldn't. <laughs> um, we were trying to see if if there was some interest in in um, in the intervening years, some adventures uh, set in Taldori, and it sounds like there is some possible interest in that. But he said that that Matt Mercer was pretty pretty well wiped out after this book, and, and is going to set it set aside setting source books for a while it sounds like so so um all that 
examined then our overall sort of uh, perceptions. Um, I had some interesting, I guess, insights in terms of, of uh, organization, if, if you will, uh, the way the way the they they ordered things. I'm not sure how I would have done it differently. But I found the the introduction as much as Tracy found some certain things in that introductory um, chapter, that first chapter, to be really engaging and hooking uh, for her. It, it felt a lot like somebody telling me about their campaign uh, <laughs> to the point that it, it, after twenty pages of it, it started to be like, okay, yeah, I, I, you've got this elaborate back backstory and history. I get it. Um, but what does that mean for my game now? You know, um, I don't know if anybody else had that impression, but it, it kind of, and it started with like out of a hundred and forty page book, it starts with a hundred pages of here's lore and backstory, um, and that was a little hard for me to get through at certain points, especially not already being familiar with the setting. Did anybody have similar experiences, or am I way off base? Yeah, totally. Um, obviously, being a professed critter like i love the stuff but definitely when i was reading it i was like cool the age of arcanum it's long and then like <laughs> the the calamity is equally long and then this like the scattered war okay for as cool as the scattered war is it's like super long uh and like it's all like interesting stuff but um if you're gonna read it in one fell swoop uh I definitely couldn't remember anything from the Age of Arcanum when I got to, like, the Ice Lost Years. Mm. Um, so it would definitely take, like, several readings for me to internalize all this stuff. Yeah, I guess it just didn't have uh, it didn't have much of an on-ramp for me. Like, I felt like I was already on the highway as soon as I got mm. into Chapter 1. Yeah, t- truth. I'm not going to begrudge the book that, like, uh, I've read my fair share of setting books, like I'm sure everybody has. And, uh, like, I just skipped those. So I did that here, too. Mm -hmm. I just skipped it and went for the meat of things, like getting into, like, the more immediate settings, like, okay, what's this region like? What's that? Because just like with any setting book, uh, I'm going to wait until I get invested in it, whether I'm running a game or playing in the game or just playing, like, getting into the meat and potatoes of the setting. Uh, And once you're invested, that's where you want to go back and and learn about the history. That's when you want to go back and figure out why things are the way they are now. Mm. Um, And that's that's my method for doing it. I just, I wait until I have something to hook onto, and then I go back and look through the things that maybe will explain the setting a little bit better. Find the ways to flesh out that thing and, and build from that thing that hooked you. Yeah, and I find that usually with something like this, the, especially if I'm unfamiliar with the setting, the thing that hooks me is the the, the character options, right? That's and the, mm-hmm. the new the new monsters and all that kind of stuff, the the bits and stuff that even if I don't buy into the setting, I can I can steal and take into my own thing. Uh, and in fact, I found the the allies and adversaries chapter the, at the very end to be, in terms of the lore, the most approachable lore in the, in the whole book. In terms of um, you know being very easy to sort of pick up in small little bits and yet informative of, of what's going on. But, but I, I, suppose definitely... it need, I suppose it needed to go at the end because that's where all the monster stats are. Emily? I, I definitely kind of jumped around when I read the book just because I was so excited to have it. Um, but when I read the lore part at the beginning, it was I was reading it more to find out about the world the player, like the 
Critical Role campaign is in now, kind mm-hmm. of. I wasn't basing it on, oh, what I was going to do. I was really just reading it for like, oh, that's cool. Like, I was reading it more like a novel, I guess, more than thinking about putting it in my campaign. But yeah, I can guess how it, it would be heavy if you're not steeped into, like, what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just especially considering where the show is at the present time. Um, a lot of that lore stuff is really coming back in like a big way. So, mm. so as a fan, it's definitely super cool um, to get this deep dive explanation we've not really gotten on the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can totally see that being being of interest. Um, but yeah, as a non critter, um, it was it was a tough on ramp for me to get onto. <laughs> now, Tracy, did you have the same experience um, as a non critter? Because I know you said that like when you got to the gods, you found something there that you really hooked onto. And that's not at the beginning, but it's fairly close. I mean, it's at the last, it's the, like 14 pages in, so. Yeah, I didn't have the same problem you did, but I think for me, um, a lot of it was, I could see where it was connected also to like the history of D&D um, mm-hmm. in terms of like the primordials and everything else. So I kind of like that, I, I like that sort of thing where people are, are are restating it or uh, and putting their own spin on it. So I happen to enjoy that sort of thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and actually I noticed that a lot. Uh, you mentioned, like, the primordials and all that, and, and there were there was that and several other things that really reminded me of 4th edition, which is why I asked James about, you know, the additions uh, that the setting has gone through over the years and was a little surprised to discover that, that, that at no point in time was this setting ever played in 4th edition. It started in Pathfinder in his home game and then be, and was 5th edition uh, with Critical Role. Um, but it's never been 4th edition. I'm like, oh, really? Because there's some really 4th edition-y sort of uh, <laughs> you know, setting assumptions going on in some places here. So um, I, I noted that, that a little bit as well. Uh, do you happen to remember when Melora came out? Was that more fourth edition? I think Melora was a fourth edition deity. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I know um, Jeans is very was very big about Melora because we talked about something else mm. on Twitter regarding her. So I think I wonder if he brought in some for you. Ah. Um, as far as I can tell, the the show has always used the like the Dawn War pantheon. At, fourth edition introduced okay so that's what so there is some inspiration there yeah i think it's just like a really like good set of gods just like throw in a game right Mm -hmm. so oh go go ahead i was just gonna say one of the big things i'd like to talk about because we talked about it with james is the vestiges yeah let's get let's get into the the crunchy mechanical bits like the the vestiges and the player uh, character options and all that kind of stuff so, yeah, go ahead. let's start with Vestiges. Go ahead, Tracy. Yeah, so Vestiges are basically kind of like artifacts, but um, I don't know, maybe somebody else will have a better way of putting it, but the way I see it is that uh, they're tied into the story because it's, there's something, the character usually has to do something in order to engage the next level of them. Uh, does anybody else want to explain them better? <laughs> Sorry. It's not necessarily a new concept. Uh, like they're basically uh, artifacts that that will grow with you. But I will say that the the way that they're implemented, I think, is novel uh, or at least unique to to this uh, to the setting, in that um, they don't just level up with you as you level up. They kind of ask you to do something. They kind of push the story, and that, like not to not to set. 
uh, too far adrift from what we're talking about, but that's what I noticed throughout the whole book is that many of the elements within the book had to do with the story. It was uh, um, very much evocative of the fact that the people who are involved are very much about like the theatrical presentation of everything, which I think is fantastic uh, to, to the point that the, the vestiges have to do with like, well, what does this mean to me as a person? What does this mean to my overarching story what does this mean to to the kind of the through line of my character's Mm -hmm. life which um you don't see anywhere else it's not just about well i killed this many orcs and now my sword is better it's no it's like i accomplished this thing and there's something about the wellspring of the world that made my sword do a new thing that uh means something intrinsic to who i am which Mm -hmm. i think is again such such a cool thing to to really put bake into the rules of the game which you know the uh, to 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 kind of jump off of that point that's something that fifth edition has done really well to allow yeah vestiges are kind of i think probably one of my two or three favorite mechanical bits of of the whole book um and and the idea that not only that they grow with you but that they grow with you as a as a result of major story points for your character arc um, the fact that it encourages um, growth in that way uh, is, is interesting and, and um, something I want I like to see more of. Like you know, it's this kind of thing that, that a good DM would kind of start doing anyway, um, right. but it's it's kind of hard baking it into into the, how they work. Yeah, and it's specifically the DM that gets to like identify and enforce when these things happen. Uh, there's like two levels: the awakened and the exalted. Uh, and an example of when uh, a vestige might, let's say, awaken would be a character finally surmounts uh, one of their greatest fears uh, or something like that and, mm-hmm. and tries to save uh, another party member or something like that. So it's like the, it's a way of the DM re- rewarding players for, for really reaching into that and also helps set it up so that the DM is not the adversary. Mm-hmm. So the DM is there to, to help you advance and to help you tell the story, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, other other thoughts on vestiges? Yeah. Um, the thing I really like about the vestiges in particular is how um, they really become a part of your character. Uh, you know, in other D&D campaigns, your fighter may have a magical sword, but uh, if instead your fighter has Myth Carver, right, this, like, legendary sword... Um, and perhaps they've got it to the exalted status. Uh, it really like becomes uh, part of the character. You're the fighter who has Mythcarver. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's it's really it's really cool. And like we've all been saying, it really enriches the story. Um, and it was obviously designed with that in mind. Mm-hmm. So the the mechanical bits, and, and I'm mostly talking about the last two chapters now, which uh, makes up about forty or so pages of the book. Um, involves a lot of different player options, right? There's new domains and, and um, archetypes for different classes and what have you. You've got uh, a handful of new backgrounds, new feats, these vestiges, and then this sort of optional rules section, and then and then creatures and monsters. Um, did anything stand out to anybody that you thought was particularly interesting in terms of the new mechanics? Besides, uh, besides vestiges, could... which we just talked about. Sure, sure. Um, if I could just jump in and say that the uh, the death rules are really interesting, and I think that that's been kind of a greater discussion among the community, whether it be 
people who are doing, um, you know, streaming shows uh, for role playing or just the developers themselves. Everybody, everybody seems to be kind of unhappy with the old school. Well, somebody died. Let's find a diamond. And let's bring them back to life. Mm. But it seems like um, there's been a lot of uh, effort towards making it mean something when somebody dies mm-hmm. whether that be like let's make this death more dramatic and the 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 return of the person more kind of uh theatrically uh them you know thematically uh important uh or just kind of setting in little consequences so that people understand that like well maybe um my character will die but it's gonna mean something because now i'm gonna come back with like uh, a demon in my head or or like a curse or um, some some kind of like a little consequence that, that that's a, a constant reminder like well yes I died yeah and, and none of them are quite as dramatic as there's a demon in my head uh, generally speaking in terms of the way they've laid out the, the mechanics here but they, he lays out or they lay out four different ways of handling sort of alternative bringing people back from the dead rules right and some of them are, are you know like the first one a taxing return as it's called, um, is is simply going back to the old school way of, well, when you come back from the dead, you lose a point of con. And eventually you're at a con, you can't come back from the dead anymore. And, you know, once your con starts dropping to a certain point, you're going to be dying more often anyway because your hit points suck. Um, mm. And and then it scales up to the, the relatively more complex, uh, the fading spirit um, rules, which I thought were just really cool and evocative. The idea that, you know, yeah, if you want to bring somebody back to the dead, you can totally do it. But there are... But it's a little more challenging. Not challenging to the point that it's unlikely. Like, especially the first time it happens, it seems like odds are if you try to bring somebody back from the dead, you're going to bring somebody back from the dead, right? Um, but it, it lets other people get involved in the ritual to bring them back, and that changes the, the check, the resurrection check that's made. And uh, there's, you know, side effects that can come about with that. And, you know, if you want, if you need to do it fast, you know, for the quick resurrections, um, Things like Revivify and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's, you know, slightly different tweaks to how that works and all that. And I, I just found that part to be much more interesting and evocative to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, I just wanted to say, like, I didn't mean, mean to mischaracterize it. I think the whole demon in the head thing might have been something I got from another setting or what oh, sure. have you. But uh, I didn't mean to bring that in to say well, that. Well, no, and not. there is one that, that has, uh, like... Um, gives you some sort of madness, indefinite madness or long-term madness. Um, Those are basically the other two options. Uh, Didn't come back right. Uh, Which Mm. I suppose one could interpret as, you know, I've been touched in the head by a demon sort of thing. So certainly as somebody who's been playing Out of the Abyss lately, that that is not something far from my mind of something that could happen. A little bit. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that... um, the moments in the show where these resurrection rules have been used have been among some of the most like dramatic and emotional in the in the, uh, the in the whole run. So I think that's definitely a testament to uh, the tension that they can bring in, um, especially if your character has died a few times and that DC is sort of creeping up there. Mm-hmm. And it gets more and more more and more dramatic every time it happens. Hmm. Any other uh, mechanics that, that particularly stand out? Uh, so I really liked the Rune Child uh, Sorcerer Bloodline. Okay. Uh, I thought that was the most interesting to me of the class features. 
uh, I'm just a sucker for anything that uses like a sort of a dice pool mechanic. And mm. as the rune child, you're like throwing around d6s to block damage and all this stuff. Um, I just thought it was a cool take on the sorcerer, and uh, like we've been saying, really ties into the story well because you've got all these like weird glyphs on on you that the the a good DM could take in. Uh, a whole bunch of really interesting directions, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I, I thought that was. Um, I, I actually it took me a while reading through and trying to understand how these essence runes function, how the mechanics of them function. But once I did, I'm like, oh, this is kind of a really neat idea. And the idea is, you know, as you go through uh, your adventuring day or whatever, the the sorcerer can activate these runes that are kind of hidden within their body right and then they start glowing and once enough of them start glowing you actually become a light source uh and then you can expend those runes to pull off certain um you know particularly dramatic or interesting effects with your magic um sort of it kind of becomes almost a secondary sorcery point pool that does different things than sorcery points do i I guess yeah, so maybe it increases like the the bookwork at the table a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just like the the concept of it is really strong, um, like as opposed to the juggernaut, which I think is a little less strong conceptually. But you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's certainly uh, the juggernaut feels less evocative to me anyway. Right, the rune child uh, by its nature tells a story. The Juggernaut, I recognize, has a story connected to the setting, but it could also be, that could very easily be stripped down and, and be relatively generic. And like, you know, here's a new version of, Bar- of Barbarian that does some, some, you know, makes loud noises and bangs on things. <laughs> Other mechanical thoughts? I I wanted, I the first things I read was everything that I already kind of knew a hint. That's I went in going, okay, now I want to know more. Mm-hmm. So when I watch, I don't have like, huh, anymore <laughs> happening. <laughs> so that's the first thing I read, mm-hmm. and then I kept, I keep kind of jumping around, because I don't know, I can't, like, I just go with what I'm like. Oh, I'm in the mood to learn about a city, so I'll go learn learn about a city, or when I'm just trying to like plan what I'm gonna make my players do, whatnot. But um, there's just so much to remember, and I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna pay attention to what's useful. Sure, absolutely. And what's and, gonna happen, and the other stuff is there for later. And and that's honestly kind of how setting books should normally be used and consumed anyway. Like crazy people like us who review these books and read them cover to cover in order uh, are the exception, I think, not the rule. <laughs> so, uh, so since you were really interested in the setting, uh, uh, Emily. What setting piece do you think? If you had to point to, to somebody and say, "See this? This is what's cool about Taldore." Um, so what, what's the setting piece that you think stands out for you, to you the most as being really well developed? I don't know. Mm, <laughs> There's everything. just so much. <laughs> anyway, I really like the Mon because, I mean, it's the city I knew the most mm. already and it was fun to read through all the things and put it together and see a map of it and go, okay, well, now it makes sense, mm. you know? And Iman uh, shows up in the history and stuff as well. It, it, pops, yeah. it pops up a lot. Uh, uh, Ishmael, what's your favorite setting piece? Um, really, my favorite setting piece. I, I couldn't point to one, but like all of the little uh, like towns and and uh, regions, mm-hmm. and like all of the like I was saying before, when you get these little uh, nuggets and these little seeds of adventures anywhere, 
um, it just it makes you want to run the game. It makes you want to run the setting. Mm-hmm. And so you'll read about this little region or you'll read about this like, you know, specific city uh, and you'll get a real fi- a feel for it, not through some kind of a, a description of like, this is what the architecture was, but more like, okay, there's a, you know, this is the some illegal activity that's going on or this is like some uh, problem with elementals that they've been having. So mm-hmm. um, I wish I could point to something more specific, but... But that uh, general really concept kind of, of those seeds. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, for sure. So, the, like, I think it's that that whole like regional um, section where it's kind of going through more detailed stuff than like the large swaths of uh, of kind of like what the setting is about. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Tracy, tell us why the gods is the best section of the book. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, I don't know if it's the best section. I really like the <laughs> seeds thing. That was like mm-hmm. the first thing I was really going to steal from the book. Um, <laughs> but like I said. The, at least with, when it comes to gender representation, it, it, I saw it not only in the God section, but in a lot of the uh, various other characters that exist uh, um, that are described through the rest of the book. Uh, I thought there was a pretty good mix. Okay. Uh, Aaron, best setting section of the book? Uh, for me, it's definitely Whitestone, uh, the city that's detailed in the Alabaster Sierras section. Um, it's a city that's featured very prominently in the show, um, and I just love it. It's just sort of like this northern, um, like austere kind of castle, and there's all these like weird. There's like a weird pelor t- tree in the center. Uh, it's just like it's it, if the show has a home, I would argue it's Whitestone. So it's cool to like read through the section. It's, there's, there's like a really nice four page like spread on it. Uh, it's great to like read through and find all the little uh, nods to the show. Like when you, when you read about uh, like Lady Vexalia of the Grey Hunt, uh, it's just, there's something that warms the cockles of my heart to, 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 <laughs> to sort of see like the critical role characters sort of presented in this like historical fashion it's like oh yes they're their adventures you know like looking back on it and they're part of the world now it's it's up to you to to be the next adventurers mm-hmm. something really nice about that mm-hmm. absolutely uh and and i mine was probably this this small little uh bit about the shearing channel actually right before whitestone um something about that like re- as i'm reading the the description basically there's this this seagoing channel, uh, but it's really tough, rugged waters to the point that nobody ever travels there, right? Uh, and and my immediate thought was, oh, this is you know this is Han Solo flying into the to the asteroid field to to escape the Empire, right? This is this is the set the setup that they're that they're laying out is it's the impossible channel to get through, and so the crazy adventurers are going to go through it in order to escape whoever is chasing after them or whatever. And then I read that little adventure seed in it. <laughs> and it's like, oh no no no! There's this weird mutated kraken raising an army in there. Like when they say nobody successfully goes through this channel, they're not joking. Like this Han Solo doesn't make it through this channel. You know, he gets eaten. You know, so <laughs> I just I found that interesting, and it was a nice sort of combination of of the the setting description and then the way those uh, those little seeds play out. Uh, one of the the setting pieces that. Um, raise some some interest in my some questions i guess in my head of of possible inspiration 
uh, is the Ashari. Uh, and so I'm curious to ask our, our critters on the panel here, uh, um, can you tell me a little bit about the Ashari? Uh, do you want to take this one, Emily? Uh, sure. Uh, the Ishari are... The uh, yeah. The Ish yeah. Um, there are four tribes that keep gates of elementals. And there's an Earth Ishari, an Air Ishari, a Water Ishari, and Fire Ishari. And they're throughout the whole um, Alexandria. So they're not all in Tal'Dorei. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they're mostly druids, but not all of them. And yeah. And and is it just me, or are they like ripped straight out of the world of uh, the Last Airbender? Uh, you would be a hundred percent correct okay. in saying that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. it, 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 it it would happen to be Madame Marisha's favorite anime, so okay, <laughs> it's. It, yes. I mean, yeah, and it, I, that that became abundantly clear for me with the the air people because in that section of the setting they even describe like this magic item they have that is a staff that unfolds into a flying device that you can jump <laughs> on and fly around. I'm like, they're just an egg. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the story goes like when they first started playing, Marisha was just like, hey, can I be essentially like Aang from Avatar but a druid? Uh, and that was because they were playing a one-off to begin. So Matt was like, yeah, sure, why not? Um, so then uh, Matt has to go create this elaborate, like, m uh, sort of monk uh, tribal tradition that, like, it's just Avatar with the serial numbers filed off. Sure, okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm not crazy thinking that that was there. Uh, how well do, does that fit into the, to the rest of the story of the setting and what have you? Because they kind of feel a little tacked on. Uh, which I suppose is a risk of the way it was developed, but um, does it does it play out like a natural part of the the setting and how things work? Um, I think in the show, in the show, it's it's pretty uh, it flows pretty naturally. Um, I think everyone kind of gets the gets the gist that uh, it's you know he's he's ripping off this really cool thing but, but like any good dm he's sort of done his own thing with it made it a, a little different mm -hmm. um it's not necessarily like we're all doing like crazy you know bending jujitsu it's you know <laughs> these sort of like stoic elemental guardians mm -hmm. so it's you know it's his own spin on a cool property okay cool and I wanted to add too that as as someone who is not as familiar with the show, it did feel like a lot of the setting was kind of born from the campaign itself, and in the best way possible. Uh, it just seemed like he he kind of took elements of like let's say all of the the players who are in there and their backstories and fleshed them out into whole regions and whole um, whole uh, factions within the setting, and you you can tell. Like, you know, maybe it seems like they, they don't necessarily fit into place in and of themselves, but when you kind of take the whole, everything fitting together, I think, I think it's, it, it, it kind of meshes better when you, when you really uh, take it in big picture style. Mm -hmm. Very good. So we've talked a long time and there's still a half an hour uh, interview to get to. So, so let's go ahead and get to last thoughts. Anybody have any, any last thoughts or anything else that, that we haven't talked about that you think is worth discussing? The art. The art is amazing. It really good art. It is. I like when you fall on the page that's like 
not just like Amon, but it's like fr- straight out of like the story of like, if you watch Critical Role mm-hmm. or the amazing group picture that could never be because it has two characters that are played by the same person in it, but still. Yeah, and that's that's uh, a fairly iconic image that I've seen a lot since they announced the book too. Um, I think that was one of the early ones they got. Anything yeah. else? The art is great. What what else you want to say before we we head on out? Um, I just have a couple of quick uh, things I, w- I want to make sure I squeeze in. Um, just going back to the art for one second. Um, that map that came for me separately is a separate pdf mm-hmm. uh the map of the continent is gorgeous i love uh like the paper folds that are like drawn into it mm-hmm. it's stunning um we've talked a lot about stuff we really love uh but there are a few things that i uh don't love so much uh, especially in the mechanics section mm-hmm. okay um there's all of the backgrounds um, they feel a little superfluous to me. Uh, it feels weird to have like a clasp member background presented as something different when the criminal background is already in the player's handbook. Um, that feels a little weird to me mm-hmm. uh, as well. The and there's features... even moments in some of those backgrounds where they're like, well, it's basically this background, but do, do change a few things, right? <laughs> totally. Um, and all the features of those backgrounds, they offer like mechanical benefits, which is kind of antithetical yeah. to yeah. like the nature of 5e backgrounds mm-hmm. um so those are uh i would uh say caution to a dm looking to use those um but they're probably fine like they won't be campaign ru- ruining but um and there's a feat in there that messes with the concentration rules which uh put up a flag to me as well um it, Anything that like tackles the concentration rules and it's like, oh, you can concentrate on two spells at once. Uh, that also is a little uh, freaky. Yeah, and you and you guys can tell us better, but that there were some of those feats and 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 whatever optional rules that that are discussed that feels a lot like him taking house rules and codifying them in a way that that other people can play with. Yeah, that's that's what it feels like, especially the potion drinking, the, the bonus action potion drinking feat. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, a house rule the game runs us on. Um, so there's just some like uh, kind of weird mechanical stuff that may or may not suit you, um, but DM discretion for sure. Sure. And I do remember uh, hearing uh, Matt talk about that specifically because I think that's one of the first things that like a lot of interviews will interviewers will ask him about. Uh, but that is his house rule. It, is, it seems to work for them, and it's it's a little bit different. But uh, um, yeah, like it's it's the kind of thing like that's what you get when you take the the critical role campaign because that's how he runs the game, and mm-hmm. you get those people who might want to do it that way, and this is kind of a way to do it. Uh, and I didn't pay attention to whether or not there was like a disclaimer or anything on those on those feats necessarily. But if there wasn't, maybe there should have been because there. I'm sure there's a lot of dungeon masters out there who are like, no, I I don't want people to be able to concentrate on two spells at once. Sure. Uh, but who knows? I mean, I'm, it's it's not the worst thing in the world. And from everything that I've seen, it hasn't really ruined any kind of uh, um, mechanical, you know, uh, balance issues or whatever you. Yeah, no, there were none. None of the things, the the little uh, mechanical benefits for backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. There were none of it looked to me like 
this is going to be completely unbalancing so much as it was just, yeah, this isn't really the design philosophy of 5e. Um, you know, you're designing third edition or whatever with, with some of these features, you know? So, mm-hmm. but none it's of them are game breaking. Yeah, it's not, it's not a huge negative on the book. Just something I noticed yeah. um, a DM may wish to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. All right. Other last thoughts? Go buy the book. Go buy the book. <laughs> At no. least the PDF. And if you're going to buy the hard copy, go to, no- go to yeah. Noble Knight and buy it from them for $5 off and tell them the Tome Show sent you. Oh, and oh, and it comes for those who don't know. It comes with a map that you could put in the frame. I was very happy yeah. to get that. Oh, that's awesome! It it was cute. I was like, I now need to frame this. Oh, it's not double sided. That's always the trouble with these awesome maps is that oftentimes they're double sided. No, sweet. It's it's just like the one you get as in the PDF, but on paper. Awesome. All right, so that's our review. Uh, now we're going to hear from James Haig, co-author of the book. Jeff, take it away. All right, I am here now with James Haig, the game designer and writer who has done work for Cobalt Press, is, works as, has worked as an I- editor for the Ian World Insider, and has written many things for Adventures League, and is also the co-author of the Taldori book. Welcome, James. Hello, it's great to be on. And and since we are interviewing you before um, we were doing the actual review, if I mispronounce things, you make sure to let me know. All right, I'll watch you like a hawk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's start off. Let's start off easy. Uh, what is this book about? Ooh, you say easy, yeah. but. Um, <laughs> The Taldori campaign setting is a book that describes the world, or uh, the main continent of the world, that the show Critical Role takes place on. It's where all the main characters of the show are from, and even though their many travels take them all across the world of Exandria, uh, the country and continent of Taldore are uh, it's still the main home and the seat of all of these adventures. Um, should I assume that we all know about Critical Role, or would you like a little uh, rundown on that, just in case? Well, I mean, certainly that's going to be uh, something that we're going to touch on as well. So, so yeah, give us that rundown if you'd like. Cool. Uh, Critical Role is the show that first... It didn't start the big... Uh, hullabaloo over D&D live stream shows, but it was certainly the one that caught everyone's attention. Uh, Critical Role is a D&D live streamed show uh, hosted by Geek and Sundry on their Twitch channel and on Project Alpha, their own streaming service, and it stars seven self-proclaimed nerdy-ass voice actors uh, and Matthew mm-hmm. Mercer, their dungeon master, you know, uh, their, their own king of the nerds. Um, and those uh, intrepid cast members are Marisha Ray, Talison Jaffe, Liam O'Brien, Laura Bailey, Travis Willingham, and Ashley Johnson. Bingo! I got ah, them you all. you got it. <laughs> Last time I gave an, inf- uh, an, in, uh, an interview, I totally forgot Talison, and my cheeks are still mm. red about that. <laughs> but yes, that's all of them, and they are all incredible D&D players, and their voice over training lends so much 
flavor and depth to the world and their characters. And if you're going to listen to a D&D live show, that is certainly the one to listen to. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, they definitely have the benefit of like they're, they're practically professional role players because uh, that's a little bit of what voice acting is all about, right? Yep, being an actor sure as hell helps with uh, yeah. your D and D plan. Right on. So, so you you since we're talking Critical Role, um, and this is a setting book based on the world that's introduced through that story. Uh, how approachable would you imagine the setting book is for people who aren't familiar with Critical Role? It's surprisingly approachable. Um, I, both Matt and I, made uh, took great pains to make this book usable by everyone. That's why, instead of just being sort of an almanac for the world filled with self-referential little bits and inside jokes to people who have watched all hundred-some episodes of Critical Role, um, it is instead filled with plot hooks locations that anyone can use and even steal for their home games with a minimum of effort um, and full of other just magic items and D&D 5th edition classes and backgrounds and monsters that while they all have a precedent in the world of Critical Role in the realm of Tal'Dorei, they are all easily usable in any fantasy milieu, uh, because Tal'Dorei was originally uh, a very generic fantasy setting that Matt created off the cuff for his friends when they were playing Pathfinder uh, two, maybe even three years before Critical Role went on the air. There's a lot of history there, and all of these characters, before they started doing the show, uh, all these players before they started doing the show, had never played D&D before. Hmm. Matt wanted to make a uh, bog standard sounds like a pejorative, but to, to make an easily recognizable and understandable and very clearly D&D world with his own twist on it. And uh, kind of going off on that, I don't know what his exact twist is from your point of view, but one of the things I noticed about it was uh, it seemed to have a lot of the common tropes and everything, but also uh, a lot more women. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and stuff like that. So I'm wondering, is that kind of like what you're thinking in terms of twist, or...? Um, that's certainly one of them. Um, I, and I think it's it's a twist, uh, so to speak, that a lot of companies are trying to follow right now. Paizo's uh, Golarian setting, and even the modern Forgotten Realms, um, have uh, started to adopt the, uh, the more progressive... Uh, look on the world uh, that you can see in Tal'Dorei, but, and this is actually in large part because of the incredible fan community the Critical Role has, I feel that Tal'Dorei is an excellent setting for introducing more progressive themes into your D&D game. Um, there are so many uh, fans of Critical Role that are also uh, in the LGBTQ plus community. There are so many uh, female fans of Critical Role. There are so many non-binary fans of Critical Role. So many uh, non-white fans of Critical Role um, that all have voiced their their concerns, um, their, their suggestions, and have all contributed and given uh, Matt and his players and me ideas of how to make the world a more representative 
a more diverse and more inclusive place without losing any of the um, danger that a fantasy world can have. Just because your your world uh, has uh, some progressive undergirding doesn't mean that you lose uh, drama or tension or conflict. I think there are some people who uh, mistake uh, being progressive for being soft and being unmotivated. Mm. And that's something that I really want to uh, stress is not happening in Tal'Dorei. Okay, cool. So, so you mentioned the that it's it sort of starts as the, the setting started as as generic fantasy, and then um, has some twists and what have you. Uh, in fantasy settings, especially D and D fantasy settings, um, they tend to go one of two ways. It's you either have sort of a really strong theme, you know, gothic horror in Ravenloft, uh, post-apocalyptic uh, dark sun, you know. Uh, planescape or, or strong themes, um, and and or you'd go more kitchen sink, uh, Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk, uh, Galerion, uh, etc. Uh, so where does Taldori fit in there? Do, do those twists start to give it a little bit of a theme, or does it try to attempt to be more kitchen sink in its genericness? Um, Taldori is firmly on the kitchen sink side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to give the impression that that means it's boring or predictable. Mm -hmm. It is, it is first and foremost understandable, especially to new fans of the show and uh, drawing comparison to the forgotten realms, which has a something like a a 40 year, 50 year history behind it because Ed Greenwood was writing that setting long before uh, TSR bought it. Um, it doesn't have such a dense back catalog of characters and history and lore. It's a fresh setting. Critical Role is two, three years old at this point. That it's not a, it's not a well gate kept setting. There are not a lot of barriers to getting into it. There are no novels that you have to pour through or endless source books. You can jump right in, and in fact, it's easier than ever to jump in because it has a show. Uh, you can watch Critical Role and uh, absorb setting details by osmosis by watching the adventures of Vox Machina and not have to pour through a textbook in order to understand the setting, um, which, in my opinion, makes Taldori an excellent place for first-time game masters to start running their games, especially if they're already fans of the show, but uh, if they're new to D and D, it's a great place to start. Also, okay. So, so it's it's more kitchen sink and, and a great starting place and an easy one, easy setting to sort of jump into because of its familiarity in the show. Um, are there places where you can sort of see inspiration? Like, are there you know different um, editions of games that have been played in the setting that you think have inspired sort of different elements or or even some of the mechanical bits that you worked on? Uh, are there pop culture things that sort of pop, <laughs> pop up in, in the setting that, that are relevant? Uh, so where does, all, where does some of that come from, do you think? Um, <laughs> uh, from a historical standpoint, uh, Matt and his friends started playing this campaign in, in Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. So it has that D20 underpinning. And then they updated to 5th edition um, before they started streaming. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know how much of the switch of editions has really... Uh, messed with mm. the uh, mechanical under, underpinning of Tal'Dorei. Uh, but I can certainly tell you that the the book, the setting book, is so filled with plot 
hooks mm. and little seeds of campaign ideas that you'll never feel as though this setting is generic or that uh, anything could happen mm-hmm. or, or like uh, anything can happen in it, but not like not just anything, if you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. There's so many places for you to latch onto and start seeing how the lore of the world can inspire your own ideas. Matt wrote a foreword to this book, uh, for instance, that goes into great depth uh, about saying how that the Taldore that I use in Critical Role is different from the Taldore that you will see in this book. And both of those are different from the Taldori that you will use when you run a campaign. We will have many of the same characters, maybe even many of the same names and themes, but the way that you pick and choose what you use in this setting will totally change it. And he encourages you to play around and mess with his sandbox and kick down his castles Mm -hmm. and build your own. Which has been the attitude I've seen from a lot of uh, legendary uh, setting designers, right? Ed Greenwood says the same things. Like, mm-hmm. you know, me- take take the world and mess with it. It's yours, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's something that I've seen stated explicitly a lot recently. I think it's always been sort of an implicit uh, mm-hmm. assumption um, for many years going back in RPG history. But with 5th edition, we've got a lot of people who are just up and saying it because there are a lot of... Sure. Um, a lot of people who uh, don't get that, who who think that the the book is law and it must be followed, and that's not true at all. The book is a starting point; it's a springboard for you to start your own adventures on. And uh, kind of along those lines, uh, so for some people, have time to create their own adventures based off the source book, uh, but not everyone does. Have you guys thought about how to offer maybe a little bit more for those folks? Uh, like published adventures? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, Green Ronin just had their staff summit in Leavenworth, Washington a couple of days ago, and I wasn't at that summit, um, and I don't think Matt was either, but Matt has said that he's he needs to take a little rest before he makes another uh, campaign setting book, before he delves into another region of the world of Exandria, like the Gothic Kingdom of Wildmount, or the mm-hmm. primordial lands of Isilra and Othansia. Um, so it might be a couple of years before we see another source book, but I wouldn't discount the possibility of something else happening in the intervening years. Um, I can't talk too much about that uh, because I don't, frankly, I don't know much about that right now. But I I think, Tracy, that there will be plenty of uh, more specific and tailored content to come out for Teldore uh, in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, that's awesome because, uh, I mean, a a good solid adventure is a great way to introduce uh, a setting, um, you know, before, you know. Uh, I, I look at uh, Titan's Grave for that, right? They never put mm. out a setting book, but they put out a, a heck of an adventure, and, and it kind of introduces the setting along the way. So, mm-hmm. That and, seems like the attitude the Wizards of the Coast has taken for 5th edition. Instead right. of producing major setting books, they introduce the relevant regions with the adventure, the, the story that they're trying to tell with it. And Green Ronin has, knows how to do that, because they published uh, <laughs> Titan's Grave. That's their <laughs> that's their product. So Yeah, and they did Out of the Abyss. Yep, uh, they, yep. They've got their basic is covered and they know how to do this well <laughs> so i will i will put my my trust in them 
So you talk about the setting and you, you have, you know, insight into um, the background and the history and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and you talk about it like it's your setting. Uh, so, so I have to ask, how familiar were you with the setting before you started the work? Uh, um, before I began work on the Taldore campaign guide, I was the editorial intern at Geek and Sundry for about a year um, from January, uh, excuse me. 2016 to about August 2016. And I, well, I was working there while I was managing their web blog. Um, I had one earphone in with Critical Role, starting from episode one when I became an intern and going up to episode 50 when I first hit live. Hmm. Um, And I I was live, uh, I was watching the live shows every week since then, uh, more or less. And so I, I was very close to the setting. Um, one of Matt's biggest concerns when he and Green Ronin struck this arrangement to make a setting book was uh, he didn't want to bring in some outside freelancer. He didn't want to take it outside of the Geek and Sundry family because he didn't know uh, whatever writers they would bring in. He didn't, uh, he didn't know that they would stay true to his vision or... Uh, keep with his style of writing. And so he and I uh, bumped into each other in the hallway one day while I was, uh, you know, getting a drink from the fridge at the Geek and Sundry office. And uh, he, Ryan Green, the technical director of Critical Role, and I uh, talked to each other. And we agreed that this is something that we should do together and that we should be in constant collaboration with together. Um, and it was because we knew the setting backwards and forwards. Mm-hmm. So then how did that process work? Is, is Does Matt serve as the idea man and, you, and you're the one who writes everything up? Is, is, you know, is he take one part, you take another part? Uh, how, do, how does it that collaboration a, play out? It was a very collaborative process. It was um, we had a series of Google Docs open basically all the time. I always had uh, those pages open in another window behind whatever I was doing. And we would write down ideas. Matt would basically drop chunks of his own notes. He would transcribe his written setting notes for his game and drop them in the doc. And I would turn that into a readable manuscript and I would drop my ideas in a certain place and he would say, uh, let me tweak this and this and this and this and rewrite all this. And so eventually it became unclear whose work was what in the end. We all had our fingerprints all over every single bit of text in that document. And certainly there were some parts that were more me than him, and there were more him than me. Um, most of the the monsters were were my doing, for instance, and most of the the history section were his, for example. But it was so collaborative; we all were able to uh, do whatever we wanted and criticize and critique and edit each other. And I, I just have to uh, add to that that. Uh, Matt is maybe the nicest human being on earth uh, and one of the most incredible people to to write with because he even when he says essentially this is bad I don't like it um, he is always ready with a a suggestion or a a tweak Mm -hmm. or something that never stonewalls another person something that that always uh, lets me fail forward 
and get something even better out of the process. Mm-hmm. And I like to think I was able to do the same thing for him, but uh, that, that's always a goal. It's always something to strive <laughs> sure. for. <laughs> so uh, I guess in regards to the book, because you're talking about how he would bring in stuff from his home campaign and stuff like that. So for the campaign setting, how much of it's like new details versus just stuff that maybe people from the show know? Like, is there a lot of stuff that was outside of the Critical Role show in the book? Yes, there was so much uh, outside of the show in this book uh, for a a plethora of reasons. Um, The most obvious reason being, of course, that uh, if you ever run a D&D adventure or you write setting notes, the players will never follow your notes, right? <laughs> every every game master knows, uh, has had this experience where you prepare all of this stuff for this town and this dungeon and these NPCs and the players have nothing to do with that and you have to improvise your eyes out of your skull in order to keep <laughs> up with them. And so he had a bunch of notes that no one had ever seen before because his, his players are players and they did something else. Um, but in addition to that, there are plenty of notes on characters that um, we do know and places that we do know that were logically expanded from what we saw in the show. The very first episode of Critical Role, for for example, began in Craghammer, this dwarven citadel beneath a mountain. And we got to see uh, some of the noble dwarven houses in the show. We got to see the inside of a tavern, and we got to go into a mine that eventually led into the Underdark. And that was the path that Vox Machina took throughout Craghammer. Mm -hmm. There is so much else in Craghammer. There are so many politics uh, between the noble dwarven houses. There are gnomes who have set up uh, invention shops, tinkering workshops in the town that Vox Machina never went to. And so the world, uh, rich as it felt in the show, is even deeper and richer in what we see here. But even beyond that, there are entire swaths of the world that Vox Machina has never adventured in. For example, the extreme north and south of Tal'Dorei, the never fields in the north, an icy wasteland, and the humid Rifenmist jungle and the Banesfall Plateau far to the south are stuff that uh, I think prior to the uh, campaign setting being formulated, Matt had never even mentioned on the show, or probably not had not even uh, written in his notes other than maybe a, a arrow saying, never fields north here, icy. Um, and so that was where we really got to stretch our wings and create stuff unfettered by the shackles of continuity. And we could uh, just do any sort of cool thing we want with the baseline lore that had been created for the world. Mm. And I think the, the Bane's Fall Plateau in particular is very, very juicy uh, because you get to see remnants of this war between gods and mortals that Matt had created and that you can see uh, echoes of in the Critical Role campaign, but on the Banesfall Plateau, you can see the towering remnants of the armor of a dead god, the Strife Emperor, and the hobgoblins have built cities into this pitted suit of armor. And it's, it's very heightened and it's very mythic in a way that uh, the, the show uh, 
hasn't gone to until very recently. The show's gotten very uh, mythic recently just because of the uh, scope of their campaign. They're all practically 20th level right now, so things are getting kind of wacky. Sure. Uh, but this is, this is for people to stretch out in all directions with, this new material. So when you're watching the show and... and you know, he makes a vague reference to to some loca- far off location that they've never been to and, and probably ne- never will go to. Does your mind go to, oh my gosh, now we have to figure out what that is, or is it like sweet, <laughs> sweet, an opportunity to to create more? It's always a fist pump and a hell yeah. Okay, uh, <laughs> it's it's gotta be. There's, this world is so um, so engaging and so rich and so exciting to delve into that. You know, I will scramble to make a note of whatever the heck Matt just said uh, because I need to keep an keep an eye out for what we're doing next. But at the same time, I know that this reference will get all of the viewers, all of the fans, uh, just as riled up about uh, new mysteries as it does to me. Yeah, and, and now how much of that? Uh... How much of the mystery has now been demystified by people who can pick up this book? Uh, and, and how much does that hamstring Matt when he's running a game, right? Now now that little corner that was never developed ha- has some lore and some continuity behind it. Um, in a way, I can see how that might be uh, a little demystifying. Um, but uh, Matt has plenty of ways around it. For example, I'm pretty sure, you know, don't quote me on this, but my, my intuition says that the next arc of Critical Role, uh, Vox Machina are practically 20th level adventurers. They're going to retire soon and a new band of heroes. Their Critical Role will continue, but everyone will be playing a new character in the not-too-distant future. They're in the final arc of this campaign. When the next campaign begins, I have a feeling it won't be set in Tal'Dorei at all. Mm. It will be set with low-level adventurers, probably, and this is a guess, in the Gothic realm's of Wildmount. Mm-hmm. And we've heard tell of this region. Uh, they've Vox Machina has popped into this region very briefly before, but we've never dug into the deep details and locations of this place. And that will be exciting for uh, a number of reasons, not least of which is because uh, there's no book on it. Right. Uh, people, not, not yet, well, anyway. Exactly, not <laughs> yet. And so while people create their grand adventures in the realm of Tal'Dorei, and uh, now that we've opened up this setting for everyone to play in, uh, we get to go off in the show and explore something entirely new and keep that grand mystique mm-hmm. uh, of an unexplored land. Very good. So so of all the things, that you, you know, you had your, your hands in all of the different pieces of, of the book. Um, what do you wish you had just a, a little more page count to, to expand on more or to include that didn't, you know, that didn't make the cut or, you know, what, what should be there? You know, what, what maybe needs to be a supplement in the future to, 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 you know, enhance? That's a very good question. Um, I have, I have an answer, but I want to preface it with saying, I think as far as campaign setting books go, uh, this book is uh, it's exactly what it needs to be. It talks about the campaign setting. It talks about uh, the important people, the regions, the monsters, and some of the uh, specific artifacts to the region. Um, one of the things I would have liked to go deeper on, sort of self-indulgently on this project, was dungeons and dangerous locales. In the gazetteer section of this book, the geography section, we uh, 
as I mentioned before, planted a lot of plot hooks, and some of these plot hooks deal with uh, dangerous tombs or dungeons or other places where adventure can happen. And I think the plot hooks are, are good, and they begin to plant uh, ideas in people's heads. But if we could have published a map and a room-by-room description of the Shade Barrow, for instance, or the Tomb of Uda, which shifts constantly through the murky swamps of Rifenmist. Um, that would have been a great opportunity to give people some, uh, like you were talking about earlier, Tracy, uh, in fact, uh, some concrete adventure locations. And uh, I get why we weren't able to do that. Uh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of new assets to uh, commission as well, maps and art and, and all that. And it really would have ballooned the page count of this already pretty sizable uh, hardcover. But if we ever do a, for instance, a Dungeons of Tal'Dorei expansion book, um, if we ever do something to expand on the world uh, in this campaign setting, that would be my first pick. That's what I would love to do. Very cool. Tracy, anything else about, about the book? Uh, so you mentioned the artifact section, and I was wondering if you had a favorite artifact or vestige. Oh, boy. Um, to give a quick uh, description to anyone who doesn't know what the vestiges of divergence are, Matt, for his campaign, created a group of incredibly powerful magical artifacts called the Vestiges of Divergence. They are uh, leftover relics from an age where gods and mortals fought, and they have uh, magic power dormant within them. And whenever a character uh, achieves a certain goal, uh, a hidden goal that they uh, may stumble upon over the course of their adventuring career, the dormant vestige awakens and begins to manifest even greater power. And when they reach another goal, the awakened vestige becomes exalted and manifests even further abilities. And um, that is something that I love from a third edition supplement called Weapons of Legacy that mm -hmm. I've always longed to uh, reincorporate into fifth edition, the idea of magic items growing with the player characters. Um, and the Tal'Dorei campaign setting includes a lot of vestiges that did not appear in Critical Role. Uh, every member of Vox Machina has one of these vestiges, um, but I think there are... Uh, twice the number of vestiges shown in the show uh, included in the book. And there are some really, uh, really wacky ones. Um, my answer does not go into one of these new vestiges. You'll have to check them out for yourself. My favorite vestige is Cabal's Ruin, which uh, the character Percy in Critical Role possesses. And it is a cloak that allows you to uh, absorb magic and redirect its power back at uh, another enemy. And I love using creatures' powers against them. That might, <laughs> that might come from me playing too much Legend of Zelda as a kid, but that's one of my favorite tropes <laughs> when, you can, <laughs> when you can use something's own power against it. Awesome. All right, so I think that's that's uh, all we have, and we're running close on the time that we promised to, to get you out and, and back to your life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so if people want to, to find out more about James Hake and, and 
um, you know, what you're doing and what you've got coming up and what they should be, be searching for or whatever, uh, where should they go to, to find out more about that? Or do you have anything uh, else that you've got out that you want to, that you want to promote? Um, the latest thing I've released actually is the Taldori campaign setting, but I am hard at work on, uh, more projects than I care to count. Um, I think the next thing to, to come from me will be, uh, from Kobold Press, and it's their Creature Codex, mm. which is uh, the sequel to the Tome of Beasts. And it uh, it's a new monster manual with something like 400 new and bizarre monsters from real-world folklore and that we've just created out of the fantasy ether. Um, and there's some really wacky stuff that I created for that book. I think you'll have a lot of fun with it when it releases... Uh, I'm not sure it has a release date yet, but it'll it'll come out pretty soon. Um, after that, if you are a player in the D&D Adventures League, um, I am working on a Tier 3 adventure for this current season. Um, it's called Fire, Ash, and Ruin, and it will release early 2018. So if you like demons and dinosaurs and active volcanoes in the jungles of Chult... Uh, take a look for Fire, Ash, and Ruin early next year. Um, if you want to keep up to date with what I'm doing, in the meantime, uh, I'm most active on Twitter. My handle is James J. Hake. That's got my middle initial J in the middle of it. And... Yeah, you should really look for me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. Okay. That's where you see everything, everything that I put out and all my other various musings. And if people want to know how to spell Hake, it's H-A-E-C-K. Yes, that's absolutely right. James J. Hake. Cool. Um, very cool. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, we enjoyed this talk. Uh, I look. I, I hope to talk to you again about about other stuff in the future. Absolutely. Uh, call anytime. It was really great being on the show, you guys. Thanks for talking with me, Jeff. Thanks for talking with me, Tracy. Uh, I hope to see you guys soon, uh, very shortly. Very good. All right. So we're going to call that the end of this episode. We'd like to say thank you to our sponsor, Noble Knight, uh, as well as our guest for the show, Aaron. Where can people find you? Uh, so if you want to talk to me, but like, Music stuff, nerdy stuff, critical role stuff. You can find me on Twitter at T-Bone underscore Doog. Spell, spell Doog. Uh, D-O-O-G. It's just my, my last name, but backwards. And Emily? Um, well, you can listen to me on my other podcast, which is called Performance Check, if you're dying to hear my annoying voice and French accent. And <laughs> Never. <laughs> Never annoying. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at MistressMiley4 and on Instagram at MistressMiley. And Miley is M-Y-L-I-E because it's my name without the first letter. Nice. And Ishmael? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter. Like, it's, So going by Lorathorn is really hard because I can't speak. Just spell it, and it's not uh, phonetically uh, sound. But uh, I'm on Twitter as Elvin Wizard King, which is way easier to remember. Uh, <laughs> and if you f if you are willing to look for me on uh, Drive Through RPG, I do a lot of fifth edition work for Fat Goblin Games. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, nice, awesome. Uh, and we'd also like to say thanks to James, 
Pokemon. And uh, for all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links when you use Amazon or DMs Guild, or supporting us at patreon.com slash show, like Steven Robertson, Leonard Palatier, Jeremiah McCoy, Robert Aducci, Matt Bible, Doug Palmer, and Mark. Thanks for the support. You just keep adding names. Well, when we keep getting more sp- more patrons, right? Yep. It's all a good thing. In fact, in fact, today we got that uh, L- Leonard uh, just joined us today as a patron, and uh, that put us over the edge. We are at the halfway point toward, towards our goal where we get rid of sponsors, and then we'll have to run a contest again, which I know you love, Tracy. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if, if you want to get a hold of us, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. Uh, that goes straight to me, and then I get it out to whichever other uh, hosts or guests we need to get it to. You can also call us at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And that is episode 289, where I stole Tracy's last line. Oh. Go ahead, Tracy. <laughs> and will we brave the lands of Alexandria in this episode of The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D unless you want to, like me. You don't think we fancy, let me teach you about class Priest, fighter, run, catch a kick, your ass You don't think we street, look at this table full of ice You don't think we hard, just touch my dice You don't think we can get it at the birds and the bees I'm a pallet in the suits, but a thief in the shoes My character shoots, cause they full of the brim With maxed out sass, out to up in my DM He think he in charge, we don't worry about him Simple when he out to get us, be like Jack the Swim Master player, traitor, master creator Look at me, master NPC generator she a master doesn't mean you have to hate her Got a boy, I don't need to be no master later I don't care if over there your character is dying Cause it's just like baseball, there's no crying You wanna join in, now you start realizing We're the cool, cool nerds, call me Neil deGrasse Tyson D to the R to the A, gun S, D and D The dungeon master sets up a scenario Then he or she asks, where would you like to go? We talk as a group, then decide together There's no winning, yo, we could play forever Questions or clear up all your misconceptions. Stay right there, let me answer your questions or clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me, you don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me, you don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me. I'm off the wall.